0: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxey, and this is ReSound.
1: 72 African migrants boarded an inflatable boat on the Libyan coastline bound for the small Italian island of Lampedusa, only 18 hours away.
0: ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audio splashes we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and then bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound.
2: When I see the boat, I'm very shocked. I feel something bad inside. I don't know why. After three hour, four hour, the boat is fine, water is fine, everything fine. We are going are going, people start praying.
0: Keeping up with current events can be a daunting task. There are only so many stories you can actually absorb. And a particularly complicated story from a country far away, involving people you don't know and politics you're unaware of, is especially difficult to connect with. No matter how important the piece is, it's tempting to just skip right over it. Our first story is one that you might skip over, but we've brought it to you because we hope you won't. This is the kind of story that grabs you by the throat and says, listen to me.
3: Then the weather started to change and the ocean,
0: instead of being calm, was rough. Every day, four or five people died. It's the story of a harrowing, epic journey on the Mediterranean Sea that started with high hopes and ended in tragedy. The tale begins in Libya in the port city of Tripoli, where 72 African refugees were herded onto an overcrowded zodiac, a large inflatable raft, for what they thought would be an 18-hour trip to the Italian island of Lampedusa, where they sought political asylum. But the 18 hours turned into 15 days, and in the end of the 72 passengers, only nine survived. Australian producer Sharon Davis spoke with three survivors and digs into how and why they were abandoned at sea.
2: My name is Abu Kurke. I tell the story from the beginning. Amazing story, what happened on the sea. If I talk all the story to you like this one by one, it is really, really amazing story. What happened, how the people die? I never, never forget in my life this accident. I tell the story from the beginning. I tell my story what happened.
4: You're watching BBC News the headlines at one o'clock. US fighter jets launch fresh airstrikes on Colonel Gaddafi's defenses after more than a hundred missiles were fired overnight. Colonel Gaddafi says he's arming the Libyan people to defeat the attacks and says he's preparing for a long war.
5: As well as from the air, strategic targets are being attacked from the sea. American warships and a British submarine have fired cruise missiles.
6: Dramatic humanitarian situation. In a few days, more than 100,000 people crossed the border.
5: African refugees fleeing Libya say they've received death threats from rebels who believe they are mercenaries working for Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. The UN Refugee Agency has expressed alarm at reports of armed Libyans attacking and in some cases even lynching sub-Saharan Africans.
6: There is a risk of people blaming all Africans and of course the overwhelming majority are innocent people that were working in Libya, some of them not even having a country to go back.
4: No one with black skin is entirely safe.
6: Some people will cross the Mediterranean if this turns into a full-fledged civil war. It's very important that Europe also uh, assumes its responsibility as a continent of
7: asylum.
3: I left my country in 2006 because of the problems there. I arrived in Libya in 2008 and was caught working without papers. I spent more than a year in prison.
4: Girma Haliform, Eritrean, age
7: 24.
3: When we left for Italy, people were being attacked in the city. There was a lot of instability, and I was scared to leave the house. I was living with my girlfriend and two other friends.
7: They are no longer alive.
4: Mohammed Ahmed Ibrahim, Ethiopian, age 23. I was
5: living in Libya for two years, the first year I was in jail, and after that I was working. Sometimes I'd get caught and jailed for a day and then come out and work again. I was just surviving. Dadi, Ethiopian, age
4: 20.
8: I crossed from Sudan to Libya more than three years ago, I spent one and a half years in jail and when I was released the house that I was living in was set on fire and it burned down. I received burns on my feet and hands,
6: but I was not able to get any
8: medical attention because I am a refugee. I left for Italy with four of my friends, they died on the boat.
9: Black people were being attacked, so going out, working and even buying food became hard. We were called Murtazika by Gaddafi's opponents and they beat us. They thought we were fighting for him.
4: Elias Mohammed Qadi, Ethiopian,
6: age 23.
9: Then on the 17th of February, this conflict started. The insurrection, or whatever they call it. The UN and European Council met and declared a no-fly zone, and NATO started bombing places around our area. It was close by. We could not stay there, we were scared for our lives. We hadn't planned to go to Italy before the war started, but the situation was getting worse. We knew that European and NATO ships and planes were patrolling the Mediterranean in force and it would be safer for us to get out of Libya. It was not our war and we didn't want to die amongst the Libyans.
6: It
9: was a quiet night, the 26th of March, 2011, when we boarded the boat from a wharf in Tripoli somewhere. There was no one else around. When you are boarding, you are not allowed to look around. We were not allowed to see anything.
3: The time to leave was pre-arranged in consultation with the soldiers. It was in the early hours of the morning. It all went according to plan. The soldiers were the ones who put us on the boat. The number of people on the boat, we are
2: 72, with two small baby and 20 women. The boat is very small boat. Even there is no place to sit down. So some people are standing, some women are sitting. It is very risky that time. When I see the boat, I'm very shocked. I feel something bad inside. I don't know why. Because the baby is crying. There is soldier also there. They are pushing people by force beating to get place in the boat. So I'm very shocked that time.
4: When you got onto the boat, did you have food and water?
2: Yeah, everybody have water and some food. When we go to the sea, for example, I have this kind of bag with me. and Everybody have this kind of thing. What they do there, they are soldiers. They take our bag, they tell us, you stay on the boat first, then we give you the bags. Everybody should, please, I need something from my bag, I need something... I have food because we, we don't want to go. Then the soldiers, they open fire, so everybody is afraid. But it is uh, very difficult without water, you know. I am very shocked. After three hours, four hours, the boat is fine, water is fine, everything fine. We are going, we are going. People start praying.
10: From the information we have, the boat was a Zodiac-like type of boat, inflatable, which probably was around 10, 12 metres long.
4: Lorenzo Pisani, forensic architect and human rights investigator, co-author of a report on the Left to Die Boat, Goldsmiths University of London.
10: So the boat left Tripoli, and after a few hours of travelling traveling with a motor. The first encounter that the migrants had with somebody else was a French surveillance plan, which took a picture of the boat itself, recorded the GPS location of the boat where the picture was taken, and sent it to uh, Rome MRCC, which is Maritime Rescue Control Center.
3: Captain Craig Sharpen and his crew are departing from a NATO facility in the port of Augusta in southern Sicily. The Canadian frigate, HMCS Charlottetown, is heading for the waters off the coast of Libya. Its task is to rejoin the NATO operation, Unified Protector. Canada is just one of a growing number of nations
5: contributing to this operation, which began on the 23rd of March. The area of operation is the central Mediterranean, one of the most congested waterways in Europe. What we do is we link all our uh, radar images together, all the ships, and then from that, what we're doing is creating sort of a map of all the contacts in the area. We're also working with uh, aircraft as well that are tracking uh, vessels, and from that, we have a full picture of all the vessels in the area.
4: Is this the boat? They think it might be a photo of the boat that you were on. It was a photo taken by a French aeroplane in the afternoon on the day you left. Have a look
6: closely. Yeah. The colour
5: is the same.
4: You sitting?
6: Sitting? Here. You were up here? Yeah.
5: I was sitting here, underneath in the middle. But it was quite uncomfortable because there were so many people on the boat. People were sitting on the sides. I don't know exactly which place I sat when this photo was taken, but what happened is we moved around. After sitting for a while, the people who sat in one place moved to the side.
2: So after like 18 hours, after four o'clock like this, the weather is changed.
3: So everybody afraid. The sea became rough and it began to rain heavily. Because the boat was so overcrowded it couldn't go very fast. Our fuel was running low. We were told the crossing to Lampedusa should take less than a day but there was no land in sight and people were confused and frustrated. The boat was so crowded that some were sitting on the petrol jerry can and it started to leak onto their bodies. The smell was bad, and the petrol was burning their skin. The women were the worst affected. They started to get sick.
10: And so they called Father Zerai, who is a, a priest based in Rome, who has, you know, in the past year played a quite incredible role in the history of migration in the Mediterranean, because he has been receiving a lot of phone calls. A lots of people were trying to cross from Libya to Italy have been calling him when they were finding themselves in distress.
11: My name is Father Musie Zerai. I am Eritrean Catholic priest. I live here in Italy just more than 20 years.
4: So, where were you when you received the call from the boat?
11: I'm here in my in my room.
4: Do you remember receiving the call?
11: Yeah. Eh, Quello che mi ricordo della, della chiamata è che i ragazzi.
12: The boys called me, and they said they were finding it difficult, because they'd been travelling for 18 hours. There wasn't much petrol left, and they'd finished their food and their
11: water. The sea was
12: choppy. Some people on board were sick, mainly the women and babies. They felt they were in danger, and asked me to get help from the maritime authorities.
4: need
12: help, please, we need help. So very risky, the water is
2: coming high like this, you know, coming inside, very dangerous that time, that time. So we called to Father Muse like two times and he tell us that he's going to inform the Italian government. So we are waiting.
12: When I received the call, the first thing I did, I rang the Italian Coast Guard and told them about the situation and asked them to come and help. They'd already travelled for 18 hours, there was not much petrol. I told the Coast Guard this and the Coast Guard said they'd raise the alarm for the other Coast Guards in the Mediterranean and all the other ships that were travelling in that area. Why they weren't able to find them or help them is a question the relevant authorities have to respond to.
4: One of the things that was of concern on the boat was that the captain, so-called, could not read his position. Is that right?
11: Yes,
12: he didn't know how to use the GPS and the satellite telephone. So the last thing I tried to do was to send a message explaining to him how to use the satellite telephone to identify the exact location of the boat. I have here
11: the. This is the phone
0: he received.
11: My, I, I sent the message to tell him how to use the GPS to send to us the exact position, but he don't give us any answer. The telephone, you don't have battery.
4: So the batteries have run out, and none of you were able to read the GPS to give your position. Yeah, yeah. the
2: captain is. Uh, he tried to give the position, but
11: the battery off.
12: After that, the Italian coast guard rang the manufacturers of the satellite telephone, and they succeeded in finding their position. They were sixty miles off the coast of Libya
4: so the coast guard told you that they had sent out a clear distress signal yeah. to all the ships yeah. and to all the other coast guards yeah.
11: yeah
13: priority distress from rome maritime rescue center italian coast guard to all ships transiting in sicily channel on 27th march 2011 sicily channel in position latitude 33 58 decimal to north Longitude zero one two fifty five decimal eight east at sixteen fifty two GMT. A boat with around sixty eight persons on board, probably in difficulty. All the ships transiting in the area are requested to keep a sharp lookout and report any sighting urgently to the Rome Maritime Rescue Coordination Centre.
11: Io continuato a sollecitare.
12: I continued to ask for help from the Coast Guard, and on the day after they first called, I rang the NATO base in Naples to see whether they could find this boat and another boat that had left before them, a much bigger boat with 336 people, including about 20 children, many of them sick, and I asked for help from them. I also rang the Italian Navy and I gave them all the information I had, the satellite telephone number that I had, and told them all about their situation. There wasn't a positive response. For a week I tried to get a response, but there was nothing. Almost every day for a week I rang the Italian Coast Guard looking for news about the boat, and they said they had no new information about that boat.
14: NATO units at sea neither saw nor heard any trace of distress calls from that area. This is all we have to say about this. We looked into this and there is no evidence. Basically, NATO was not involved because it had no signs. Okay? NATO have said many times different things. Tineke Strick,
4: Dutch parliamentarian investigating the left-to-die boat tragedy. Committee on Migration, Refugees and Displaced Persons, Council of Europe.
14: In the beginning they said we didn't receive any message from Italy of this boat in distress when we could confront them with a message they said okay this message we got but not all the other messages and then they said we have forwarded this message to all our military vessels now if you look at the answer of the spanish frigate that was very close to this boat in distress They say, oh no, we didn't receive any message at all, also not from NATO. So it's very unclear to us what exactly happened. And if they say they didn't come into contact, it doesn't say they were not informed. And then still the question remains, why didn't they undertake action? I mean, it's their own choice not to be involved, not to have contact with this boat in distress, you should say.
2: So we are stopped. The wind is pushing us and some people are shouting, babies crying, women are crying, you know. Then we see helicopters
5: helicopter is on a the... When the helicopter came, a military type of helicopter, we were really happy.
6: Father Musi had
5: told us when we called him that help would come, and when we saw the helicopter, most of us were relieved. We believed we were going to be rescued.
1: When it first arrived, it circled around us two or three times, and then it came closer. So close, it was just over our heads.
5: It was really scary and we didn't understand why it was so close, because it was making a lot of wind and pushing water into the boat. It almost capsized us.
9: It was circling above us,
6: it came close and sprayed us with water, it was really noisy. We thought
9: they were marking our position. One of the crew signaled that we should wait to stay there. They would be back. And then they left.
6: We were so confident that the helicopter would come
5: back. Instead of saving the food and the drink we had for the rest of the journey, we decided to give it to those who were hungry. We believed we would be rescued.
6: Some of us even changed out of our wet clothes, thinking, this is it, we'll soon be in Europe.
10: Almost all of the survivors converge on one point, that the helicopter had the writing army in English on its side, which is a quite important piece of information because, I mean, you would assume that helicopters taking part to the military operation in the sea would be belonging to the navy right and not to an army and also the language points to certain nationalities and exclude other nationalities right like british british americans we know were there it was probably an helicopter belonging to a certain specific kind of ship what they call uh, landing deck platforms it's somehow smaller than an aircraft carrier but still brings military assets that could take also part in land operations. We know it was a military helicopter that was a machine gun mounted on the helicopter itself. And also they saw people taking picture of them, which again is another element coherent with the way in which NATO reconnaissance operation have been carried out. So, you know, there are many elements that point to the presence of a military helicopter, but we are not yet in the position of really saying to which nationality it belonged and where it was coming from. These
5: flights basically serve as a visual verification that vessels are who they claim to be via radio. The aircrew also take pictures which are shared with all the 21 ships that currently make up the NATO task force. Today the crew spot only two vessels. Major Alison Diamond says it's possible that ships are avoiding passing near Libya because of the conflict.
10: We're able to say to the different
7: ships this is a fishing fleet, there's 8 fishing vessels here or 11 fishing vessels here. We take pictures of those fishing vessels and then when we fly back the next day we can see that it's the same number in the same area or the same general area.
14: We could not get any confirmation from which vessel this helicopter came from, so we did not get any official uh, statement from one of the member states that took part in this action. We only have this from the reconstruction being made by the survivors, but I'm quite Convinced that this really took place. It was also very soon after their uh, call for help was registered by the authorities and that their location was made clear. So they really thought at that moment, OK, now we're we going to be rescued.
10: This leaves us more or less in the evening nights of the 27th, when um, they have been waiting for a few hours, nothing was actually happening. And when the sun went down, they started to realize there were other fishermen ships around them. They started to go randomly from one to the other to try to ask for help. And what happened is that all of these ships actually left without providing any assistance to them. This might seem quite unlikely, but these people have been accused of illegally smuggling migrants into Italy so people become more and more reluctant to actually provide help to migrants in distress at sea we
2: are waiting, we are waiting no, no helicopter never come back so after we asking him to the captain to drive the boat to Italy again because the wind is little bit better and he said no, we don't want to do that no, he said I have to wait here, this helicopter is coming so People push the captain to drive the motor. Then he tells what happened. The captain, when he see this helicopter, he puts everything on the sea. Telephone and GPS, compass, everything.
4: He threw everything into the sea? Into the sea, yes. He was afraid that if they found the things on him, they'd consider him to be a people smuggler.
2: Exactly, that is what he said. When he said that, everybody is very shocked.
4: I was crying.
2: We are lost. That is what I believe. Oh, I tell to my god, oh my god, we are going to die.
13: Eastern Mediterranean Sea. Vessel, 68 persons on board, in need of assistance in thirty-three fifty-eight decimal eight north, 012-55 decimal 8 east at 271652 Zulu, March. Vessels in vicinity requested to keep a sharp lookout, assist if possible, reports to MRCC Rome. Message sent as Hydrolamp Navigational Warning, 28th March at 6.06am, and then every four hours for ten days.
6: Two
9: or three hours after we set off again towards Lampedusa, we saw the second helicopter.
6: It was a different
9: helicopter from the first. It didn't circle around us like the previous one. It just did one circle and hovered over us. We decided to show them we needed help. We held up the petrol tanks, the empty ones, to show that we had run out of petrol. We showed them the empty packets of biscuits and their empty bottles of water, so they would know that we were hungry and thirsty. Then they used a rope from the helicopter to drop us some bottles of mineral water and a few boxes of biscuits. The men didn't eat much. They gave most of it to the women and the children on the boat.
2: So everybody is shouting to the helicopter, please, please help. We try also to show them the baby, please help. So they give us water and we saw somebody from inside show his hand like this, like, please wait in this area. So we are waiting. The helicopter go, he don't come again back. Helicopter, he never come back.
10: What we know is that the second helicopter dropped few biscuits and water onto the boat and then left. Of course, if they did this, it means they somehow acknowledged that there was a situation of danger and of distress on the boat. It's uh, again the question why there was no further intervention. And what you can see is really a practice, let's say, of minimal assistance, providing people with the bare minimum capacity to continue their journey. One might wonder if that is the appropriate answer, if you consider that more than 1,500 people died in the Mediterranean. The UN Agency for Refugees a few days earlier adds asked all the parties involved in war and the coast guards of the coastal states, etc., to consider any boat leaving from Tripoli as a boat in distress, because they had no emergency measures on board. Uh, it was a very precarious condition, even at that very early stage.
14: If we hear from experts, they say... A captain never decides something like this on his own. There will have been contact with people on the land from the Ministry of Defence to say what to do in this situation. I think that the people who were in helicopter and saw these people, they must have seen that these people were really in distress. I mean they made it very clear these people in this boat that they were really in need for help. Based on your investigations, where do you think the helicopter came from? We think it must have been very close. The vessel where the helicopter came from cannot be that far away because it was quite soon that it came back again. We know that there is a Spanish frigate was there very close. Uh, We approximately 11 or 12 miles only from this boat. At the same time, some of the survivors they saw "army" written on this helicopter, and this could suggest that it could be a UK helicopter, maybe a US helicopter.
2: So he's going, he's going. He say, "I finished the oil, the motor, cut."
6: We
9: continued in what we thought was the direction of Italy, and it started getting darker, and after that the petrol ran out. Everyone was deep in thought, just waiting. We might die there, or maybe someone would come and rescue us. I thought that perhaps in the morning when the sun came up, someone, a helicopter or a ship, might find us. But in this situation, you don't discuss such a thing, whether anyone will come. But I thought we might get lucky.
8: I was praying to God. Everybody reacted in their own way. I was just praying. That was the best I could do, just pray. After a few days, all the biscuits, and the drinks that had been dropped by the helicopter were eaten by the women and children, and the conditions became very
6: tough. We saw lights in the distance. We thought it might be a city.
9: Suddenly, a boy at the back of the boat fell into the water. Another boy jumped in to try and save him. Both of them drowned. They were the first people to die. After that, people started crying and losing hope.
2: That time, you know, I'm not feel good. It is very difficult when we see also there is people die. The man jumped and the sea die also, his wife is there. She's crying like this, I was also, I cry really. I pray, I pray more and more to my God, really. Everybody do that, you know, everybody's praying. And the women are crazy, all of them. Some people remove dress, they want to swim on the sea. Some people come to you and, please, I need food. Where is my food? I'm very shocked, me and my friend. This is what happened on the sea, really. So after more people died, like seven people died after six days, so bodies there on the boat. Some people uh, go inside the sea. They jump to the sea. I remember uh, one lady, she said, I'm going to the shop. I'm going to buy hamburger. She said like that. Be hungry and crazy, you know. So oh, more people, this kind of thing happen. We find them. We take them out. They are dying. Next day also she died. I you, the people are, 75% are crazy. After those two boys
9: died, around that time, among the women on board was an Ethiopian woman called Jamila and another called Rahel with a baby.
6: They died because they were next to the motor. They
9: got infected from the petrol. The infection spread all over their bodies And during the night, when no one could see them, they died.
6: We found them in the morning. The baby was still alive. Some of
9: us were trying to take care of the baby. We couldn't give him anything to eat or drink. We used Colgate toothpaste with water. We mixed it up and gave it to him. But after a few days, the baby died too.
3: Then the weather started to change and the ocean, instead of being calm, was rough. Every day, four or five people died. The wood on the floor of the boat started to fall apart. After that, more disasters came. It was very tough after that, very tough. For about three days, I was hallucinating, lying on the floor of the boat. I thought I was on land, but I was still on the sea with the others. I was lucky, my friend committed suicide, he jumped into the water and drowned. I found my wife and her friend dead next to me. It was a combination of lack of water, shortage of food, starvation, the rain and the cold. When the sea was rough, there was nothing to hold on to, so people fell into the water. But mainly, it was starvation, they didn't have any strength, there was nothing, nowhere to go, there was no food or water, people started to drink their own urine and the ocean water and there was no one to call and ask for help.
6: After all this time on the ocean, there was not a drop of
9: hope left in our souls for ourselves. There was only one question that came into our heads. When will I die? When will it be my turn?
8: After the drowning of the boys, and the woman started dying, after being adrift for ten days, then a ship, a really big ship appeared, it had two helicopters on board.
3: We couldn't get right up next to them because we didn't have any fuel left, but the wind helped us get a little bit closer. Then we were very close to them. It was a large ship, like a big city. It had a lot of lights and it even had helicopters on board. We were trying to attract their attention, waving the empty petrol cans in our white t-shirts. Above us on the ship, there were people. They were watching us, taking photographs, but they were not willing to give us any help. We lifted up a dead body and showed them. We tried to show them two, three or four dead bodies together. We lifted them up and showed them, but we didn't get anyone willing to help us.
2: Please look, we need help like this. And we, we showed this baby body like this, please.
4: So you held the baby up? Yeah.
2: yeah. And also a little bit that time, oh my God, I say myself, I'm going to survive. Because everybody is waiting for the time to die, you know, like 20 people are on the boat, the body is there. You are looking this, so we are everybody is waiting for his time.
4: So, but how maybe. many people were still alive on the boat at that time, do you think?
2: Like, I don't count, yeah. just like 35 people, I think so.
4: So, about half of the people, yeah, 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 still alive the on yes, the boat, yes. and the other half have died. Already died. And some of their bodies are Inside on the boat. Some
2: bodies on the boat, yes. So this ship also ran without any help, no one get any help.
4: So the ship just left? It's left
2: there, don't help. So that time I was very shocked, really. What is going on? Somebody say, what is in this boat?
4: People thought there was a devil on the boat. That the boat was cursed yeah
2: somebody way. say like that because we get a helicopter we get ship with the jet fighter we see this fish boat all of them they are looking at us why you don't get help what is going on
13: eastern mediterranean sea vessel 68 persons on board in need of assistance vessels in vicinity requested to keep a sharp lookout assist if possible
4: What information have you been able to gather about where that vessel might have come
14: from? From that vessel, actually, we don't know anything. That's a big problem for us. Tineke Strick, Council of Europe. What we now need to find out is where these large military vessels were in that region. We asked NATO, of course, can you provide us with this information? NATO says, No, we cannot do that. It's depending on the member states themselves. So for some member states, we didn't get any information. And for some, we got selective information. So not from all military vessels.
4: NATO would know exactly what boats were where at that time, wouldn't they?
14: Yeah, of course. Of course, they would have. I mean, otherwise, they couldn't have coordinated this action at all, of course. So who
4: is NATO accountable to?
14: Yeah. Yeah, well. I should think the NATO Assembly, but at the same time, also all allied partners, of course, can also be held accountable for what NATO is doing or not doing, of course. Until now, we are waiting for an answer.
4: Which military vessels were closest to that boat during that 15 days of drift under NATO command? Juana Lungescu, NATO spokesperson.
14: Well, that's, that's something that you would have to, to ask individual nations.
4: No, the ones under NATO command I'm talking about.
14: We do not identify national assets. It's up to, to nations to, to do that themselves.
4: But you would know exactly which boats were where during that period, wouldn't you? Yes, we would. So why not make that information available?
14: because NATO has now reviewed all the information that we have as an alliance. And I understand that allies have also concluded their national reviews into what happened. And what allies have told us is that none of their ships or aircraft that were part of the NATO task force have made contact with this particular boat. What do you
4: make of the fact that all of those people moved away from the survivors, they left them
11: there. It's
12: difficult to imagine the reason why people would have contravened their responsibility under international laws. But above all, speaking as a human, I don't know what kind of conscience was commanding these ships or helicopters, that they decided to abandon these people to their destiny. Truly, you could say they've made an inhuman choice because the young people tried to get their attention to help the women and children who were dying. So whoever saw them, even anyone who photographed or videoed them and then did nothing to help them, for me, this is a criminal offence.
4: How representative do you think the way that the people on that boat were treated is of a European attitude to people coming across the water in boats? This could be
12: what has conditioned the choices they made. Obviously, the European countries haven't been happy about the arrival of migrants by sea, and the politics in Europe for the preceding months and years has been about keeping the borders closed to the immigrants. But the problem is that if something like this happened to a boatload of European tourists, they'd turn the world upside down to save them. But the fact that these were poor immigrants who were asking for help, it was just another problem for Europe, so they remained there. And that's what happened.
6: After staying there for a few days, drifting, people continued
9: dying one by one.
6: Decisions had to be
9: made about the bodies in the boat,
6: a close friend would throw
9: his friend's body into the ocean, some loved ones would keep a body close for days, hoping maybe a boat or something might appear, we might get help, but nothing happened. Eleven of us had survived by the miracle of God, when a large wave pushed us into the shore.
4: The boat came back to the shore. You arrived back in Libya.
5: One of the young women, her name is Rahama. When we got to the shore, she died there after surviving the journey. It was so sad.
4: After you reached the land, you were arrested by the military, is that right?
3: Even now I don't remember clearly, I was so ill, it's all like a dream. Soldiers took us to a military hospital. In the hospital, instead of giving us any medical treatment, they took blood from us and then took us to a prison. They put the ten of us from the boat in a cell. One of us was unable to eat or drink, so we were feeding him drops of milk, like a baby. If he'd got help, he would have survived, but he died next to us in the cell. Oh,
13: you've
4: got scars on your ankles.
7: My leg was infected,
3: swollen and stinking. Oh. To go to the toilet, I had to crawl. I couldn't stand up. And Johannes, the one who lost his hand, was helping me.
7: I was really traumatised.
3: I thought we'd all die in the cell and I decided to bang on the cell door and I said to the guards, Please take us and kill us. We want to die. Why are you keeping us here?
7: The guards came
3: and opened the door and were shocked. They asked us, Who brought you here? Especially when they saw the dead body on the floor. They called the commander and took us from the prison to the hospital. From the hospital, we were sent to another prison. Then, once again, we were loaded into a vehicle and sent to another prison, where we were locked up for nine days. One of Abu's relatives, Jamal, was studying in Libya and we contacted him. He came to the prison, bribed the authorities, and we were released.
4: If, as you say, they knew the boat was there, they'd received the distress calls, they knew exactly where their boats were, Mm -hmm. why do you think they didn't take action?
14: Yeah, this is the hardest question that I uh, get around this report, and I also have it myself, of course. It's quite ununderstandable, actually. If you think that they were there with the mission, responsibility to protect, then it's very strange that you only think of the Libyan citizens and not of the refugees that have fled this war because of the war situation and this intervention. So, um, morally speaking, it's not defendable and it's not understandable. How would you describe NATO's response? your questions quite astonishing actually so so silent as they are and trying to uh, deny everything And uh, also by their different replies they show that they try to deny everything and only if it's inevitable if it's already been proven then they said okay we agree it shows an attitude of being afraid of not wanting to admit anything if not necessary and also an attitude of not wanting to learn from what has happened they say that they really regret what has happened if you really regret it you want to know what went wrong i mean you you want to avoid that this will happen again so cooperate with us why being afraid for this i'm still hoping for another attitude
9: The action in Libya was supposed to promote peace, not to kill people. We are also human and should be treated with dignity and respect, and they didn't treat us like that. Why did they leave us on a boat to die?
6: Why did that happen to us?
9: There are thousands of others like us, refugees. We want to stop such things ever happening again. In The Hague, a lot of international crimes have been investigated, so it shouldn't be difficult to investigate this. We want this investigation to happen. The people who died on the boat must be compensated and the criminals must be brought to justice. These people claim to fight for human rights, but leaving us in a boat is similar to killing us. Maybe they didn't shoot us, but they left us to die. It's the same as killing us. We want the world to look at the situation we're in.
6: That's why we're talking to
9: journalists like you.
6: And to remember the
9: people who lost their lives in this incident.
6: We need justice. That's what we actually want
3: full investigation has to take place because 63 lives have been lost. The facts need to come out. We were in trouble. When we were in that disastrous situation, people were recording with video cameras and those cameras are there somewhere. They could have used them to help us. Why did they hide them? They were aware of our plight, but were not willing to do anything to give us help or support. And for this, I feel sorry. I feel sad. And I cannot forget it. It will remain with me for the rest of my life.
2: You know, this is amazing what happened on the sea. If I talk all the story to you, like this one by one, it is amazing, really, really amazing story, what happened, how the people died. Some people, they are survived with us. They are not good. Like I tell you, until now, I get these nightmares every time. I remember this. Sometime I'm not happy to be in life even. I never, I never, never forget in my life this accident. Sometimes, when I remember this, I think you know that the people are, they are not feeling good uh, for us. They don't want to save us. They are women, being. We are women, being. They are looking at us. They can save me, but they don't want. I don't know why they don't want. They don't want to save me.
3: Yeah.
2: God save some
0: people. Left to Die Boat was produced by Sharon Davis and Jeff Parrish with engineer Stephen Tilley for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's 360 Documentaries. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxey. The clipper ship, called the City of Adelaide, was born in the shipyards of Sunderland, England in 1864. She was built to carry immigrants across the seas to new lives in Australia. After a long and industrious career, the Adelaide found herself beached on the coast of Scotland. She was derelict and decayed and all but forgotten, until one day when an invitation came from Australia, a bid for the ship to be taken on her final ocean voyage across the world and then restored and opened as a museum. But the idea did not appeal to everyone. Peter Madison thought that the rightful home of the clipper should be in the city of her birth. And he was so passionate about it that in March of 2012, for the second time, he climbed through the porthole and boarded the creaking frame of the city of Adelaide to camp out for a month in protest. Here is The Good Ship.
1: This ship was, uh, she was a greyhound of the sea and I would have loved to have sailed on her. Each night, at dusk, when it's quiet, the ship moves ever so slightly. I can imagine, I can well imagine, of course I can, that I'm back at sea, I'm sailing on the Adelaide, the city of Adelaide, and that's a fantastic experience. I'm Peter Madison, former Sunderland City Councillor, and I'm the chairman of SCARF, that is the Sunderland City of Adelaide Recovery Foundation. I'm 54 years old, I'm a former British and Norwegian merchant navy man, and I'm now entirely and utterly given over to the recovery of this beautiful clipper ship. She is the world's last passenger carrying clipper ship. The city of Adelaide, she was built specifically to carry immigrants to the new colony in South Australia. From 1864 onwards, this ship carried between 200 and 300 brave souls to South Australia. And once she made a a fantastic journey of 64 days. And I can tell you as an ex-merchant man, it does often take a modern cargo vessel longer than two months to sail from australia back to england she would have followed the tides and the wind down the coast of africa around the cape caught the roaring 40s and rapidly sailed into adelaide she has a couple of times sailed around cape horn the long way back and that that, that would have been some uh, adventure
5: 10th of June. The rolling of the vessel goes on, same as ever. From side to side, there she goes incessantly. At meals, everything on the table slides about in the most absurd fashion, causing plenty of laughter. cruet and pickle stands, tumblers, glasses, spoons, knives, forks, keep sliding about in all sorts of ways with rattling glee, clattering all in a cluster at one side, then clatter back to the other. Great fun at first, but very provoking when too often repeated.
1: After her 22, 23 years as an immigrant ship, she was used as an isolation hospital for suspected cholera victims. She entered the timber trade between Newfoundland and Britain. And a lot of the damage to her frames might have well been taken then with these huge, big, massive Canadian trees being loaded on board this beautiful, sleek clipper. Eventually, she was um, brought to the Clyde, I believe, in the uh, 1920s. I think about those people who served on this ship, who sailed on her to Australia, to the other side of the world. Great, fantastic courage that people had to um, take a chance with this ship. September 13th. We crossed the equator about 1.30pm. In the evening, the sailors marched in costume on the deck. One represented Neptune. He had a long white beard and carried something like a trident. We danced till 10pm. This ship became uh, abandoned virtually. She's been left to the elements. I've had visitors coming down from Glasgow over the last two weeks I've been on board who knew her when she was uh, ship shape and bristol fashion, very proud and dandy, deck scrubbed clean. Uh, to see her in this sorry condition, it's heartbreaking. But this year, this summer, hopefully there will be a deliverance And she'll either find herself back in Adelaide in South Australia or, hopefully, she'll find herself back in Sunderland, the town where she was born, and she'll make our city a happy city again. I I, I plan to stay on board. I've, I've got supplies, water and food for another week. I've got a little girl, a beautiful little girl at home who is nine years old, and she's called Adelaide. And I'm starting to really miss her, and I know she's missing me. So I'll I'll be on board for another week, possibly two. And then I have to get back to Sunderland. I absolutely believe we can pull it off, but it's going to need more than me. Monday, 22nd June, 1874. It is a source of amusement to us to listen to the bells which mark the flight of time. Our ship is supplied with two of them. The one on the poop is rung first by one of the cabin inmates, where they keep the correct time, and is immediately responded to by the one forward. It was some time before I could tell the time by them, but now they are as familiar as a clock. I know that this experience is going to mark me for the rest of my life. They, they, these will be my, um, my last thoughts, I imagine. And I hope I um, end up being an old man. When I'm looking back on my life, I think um, my thoughts will fall back on the time that I stayed on this beautiful clipper ship, the city of Adelaide. In March 2012.
0: The Good Ship was produced by Sean Mullerby, and this is its radio debut. Peter Madison lost his fight to keep the boat called the City of Adelaide in England. It's now in its namesake, Adelaide, Australia. This month marks the ship's 150th birthday. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxei. Today's episode was produced by Katie Mingle and Dennis Funk. The program is curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.